0: Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. When I arrived in St. Petersburg, the streets were full of music. As I walked down Nevsky Prospect, one of the city's main arteries, musicians were busking on every corner. St. Petersburg is a beautiful city with block after block of gorgeous old buildings and the wide Neva River winding through the center. That first night I arrived, I wandered around for hours, soaking in the sound of people speaking Russian and watching the crowds sing and dance to the pop up concerts happening everywhere. And I kept thinking, wow, I'm in Russia. The next day was May 5th, 2018, two days before Vladimir Putin's fourth inauguration. And wow, I was in Russia. Okay, I think I'm seeing the protests now. There's lots of police cars and ambulances gathering and there's a, people carrying a flag. Yeah, this must be the protest group where they come. chanting. What? What is there? Putin what? Beef. Uh, Beef. I don't like Putin. <laughs> why not? Uh,
1: because our country uh, is uh, so uh, Poor. Welcome
0: to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I didn't come to Russia to report on Putin or these protests. I was on my way north to learn about the environmental issues playing out in and around the Arctic's largest city, Murmansk, more than a 1,000 kilometers away. But to get there, I had a layover day in St. Petersburg, and that happened to fall on the same day that one of Putin's strongest opponents, Alexei Navalny, had called for nationwide protests. About a half an hour before I recorded this, Navalny have been arrested in Moscow. Are you at all afraid protesting that you might
1: get in trouble? No, I'm not afraid of protests. Uh, I think that all people uh, is uh, not afraid of this.
0: Several protesters said this, that they weren't afraid, but they had reason to be. Prior to Putin's inauguration in 2012, the protests had become violent. Dozens of people were injured, hundreds were arrested, and some of the people detained were held for years. So the fact that several thousand people were now walking down St. Petersburg's main drag and shouting anti-Putin slogans was a really big deal. The vast majority looked to be younger than 30. Many were hesitant to talk to me, and those who did wanted to keep it short. Why are you out here today? Uh, Because I want uh, democracy, not uh, authority, or how do you say when there is no freedom in country. yeah, how old are you? 20. So, Putin first came to power when she was just two years old, and he's either been president or prime minister ever since. As the protesters walked down Nevsky Prospect, dozens of police cars were constantly zooming past them in both directions, blaring their sirens and flashing their lights. They weren't stopping anyone yet, it was just to create a sense of fear and confusion. But the protesters walked on, until they arrived at the Palace Square, a huge open area next to the Hermitage, which was once the winter residence for Russian emperors, and is now the city's biggest tourist attraction. A rehearsal was underway in the square for the Victory Day celebration, which would happen later in the week. That's one of Russia's biggest holidays, marking the end of World War II. Massive red banners were being hung up behind sets of bleachers while hundreds of soldiers lined up in formation and time with the military band. And on the edge of the square, the protesters gathered, chanting, Army with the people, not with the monsters. I felt the tension rising. They were now concentrated into one area, facing the soldiers in the square, breaking into chants. This one was especially popular. Down with the czar!
1: People means they he's like king, and they go away. Yes, and it's very much uh, corruption. I don't know how corruption, corruption, yes. corruption is very much in our country, and uh, we, we must uh, uh, change this. No, I think so.
0: It's probably obvious already, but I should say here that I can't speak Russian. So when I heard someone shout something and then everyone started to run, I just ran too, with no idea of what was going on. Why are people running? I asked that to the person running next to me. He didn't understand at first. Why are people running? But then he pointed back behind us, and when I turned to look, Oh. there were lines of policemen in riot gear moving toward us. I saw them start to grab whoever they could get their hands on and drag them away. Over the next hour or so, the protesters and the police engaged in what seemed to me to be a very frightening game of chicken. A phalanx of police would suddenly burst in from one side of this area, and the protesters would then run to the other and wave their flags and shout things through their megaphones. He's saying, and this is not the first nor the last month of our lives, and we will continue to come out until Russia becomes free, am I right? And then another group of armed policemen would appear from another side, and everyone ran again. I kept feeling like I should leave, and like I had to stay to document this. What if someone got beaten or killed? But when I saw the police grab two people very close to me, maybe 20 yards away, and hurl them to the ground, hard, I felt a surge of panic. I had no support network in the country yet, and if I got locked up, I'd be pretty lost. I needed to get out of there. As I was about to cross the street though, a young man approached me wearing a hoodie and jeans like a lot of the protesters. But unlike them, he was eager to talk and had perfect English. Where are you from, he asked. Why are you here? I'm from the US, I said. Well, what do you think of this, he asked. I don't think anything, I said. I'm just trying to get out of here. Well, these are good people, but such a brutal government, don't you think? I felt the hairs go up on the back of my neck This guy was clearly trying to provoke me into saying something controversial. I don't have an opinion, I said. I'm just trying to leave. Well, where are you going, he said. Where are you staying? I'll walk with you. No, no, that's okay, I said, and I hurried away from him, my heart pounding. The Russian security forces, called the FSB, almost certainly had undercover officers in this crowd, and this guy was almost certainly one of them. I found out later that more than 1,600 people had been arrested that day, not only in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but all across Russia. So, Putin had won his rigged election and he would be inaugurated a few days later, but some people, many people, had risked everything to come out into the streets and shout, Down with the Tsar. I wouldn't normally put so much of my own personal experience into a story, but I'm choosing to share all of this because I think it's very relevant to the larger story here in two different ways. First, it was a rare opportunity to witness a direct expression of dissent by a group of Russian citizens and to witness how the state responds when people here dare to speak their minds. Most of these protesters were released within a week, but the consequences of taking this kind of public stand can last much longer than that. It gets you on the radar of the FSB. For instance, one activist I met later told me her family had been questioned after she participated in a demonstration years before. And secondly, this protest actually has a direct connection to the Arctic. And to understand why that's the case, we have to rewind to the 1990s, after the Soviet Union collapsed and vast quantities of state-owned resources were privatized. Many of those resources were in the Arctic. Huge deposits of minerals, metals, oil, and gas, which at least on paper belonged to the Russian people. Privatization was supposed to move these resources out of state control and into the free market. But according to many analysts, there was nothing free or fair about this process. I would say that the foxes were guarding the hen house, but that doesn't go nearly far enough. It was more like the foxes were invited in to eat as many hens as they could. Assets were sold well below market value to a group of wealthy tycoons, most of whom had connections to the Russian Federation's first president, Boris Yeltsin. This group of opportunists came to be known as the oligarchs. And when Putin was elected president in 2000, he essentially made a deal with them. You do things my way, and I'll let you keep robbing the country. The oligarchs keep huge sums of money hidden in offshore accounts where it's making them absurdly rich instead of being taxed or reinvested at home. One recent study says there is more Russian wealth stashed abroad than is held by the entire Russian population inside the country. And many of these people made their billions through investments in companies that extract resources in the Arctic. Meanwhile, public infrastructure is crumbling in many parts of Russia, healthcare is subpar, and the state invests very little in education. The average income per person is about $9,000 a year. Compare that to tiny Estonia, a former Soviet republic right next door, where people are making twice as much on average. And if you dare to question any of this, you're putting yourself in the crosshairs of the authorities. Journalists, activists, or anyone who speaks out might get smeared in the state-controlled media which dominates the airwaves, or much worse. Russia's leading human rights organization says there are more than 200 political and religious prisoners in the country right now, and that's a conservative estimate. Many others who've been persecuted have left. Just to give two examples of that, Vladimir Karamursa, a leading opposition politician, has been poisoned, twice. Masha Gessen, a journalist and gay rights activist, Was beaten up outside of parliament after she spoke out against homophobic laws that were passed in 2012. Both fled the country. So this protest I happened to witness was not a sidebar to the stories I came to report on. It was an initiation into Russia's system of authoritarian capitalism, a blend of state oppression and unfettered greed. People here just call it the regime, It's a giant, mostly faceless force that worms its way into almost every aspect of life, including, and perhaps most perniciously, the life inside people's own minds. And it's growing stronger by fomenting division and distrust at home and abroad, and trying its best just to frighten people into silence. This has become normal in Russia, and it affects everything here, including the future of the Arctic. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin. And here are a few things I did in the Russian Arctic that might surprise you. I had multiple meals at an amazing sushi restaurant. I bought a pair of sunglasses in a shopping mall. I took the city bus every day. And sometimes I took a cab, which is what I'm doing right now with my interpreter for the week, Anna Kireva. My name is Anna Kireva, and I live in the Russian Arctic in Murmansk. This is the world 's largest city north of the Arctic Circle. It has about three hundred thousand people it's a port city and the governmental center for this region and Anna has lived here most of her life. People in my world when I said you know yeah it's like it's like a city there's you know public transport and they were just like
1: shocked ah so they think uh, of Arctic as a white tundra with reindeers exactly okay
0: igloos tiny villages okay um, yeah (laughs) well
1: what can i say it's a pity to disappoint people (laughs) but uh, no guys it's just the same style of life as you have but it's pretty cold here (laughs) in winter yeah So,
0: quick geography orientation here. Russia is the biggest country in the world by a long shot. It's almost twice the size of Canada or the United States, and it also has more land in the Arctic than any other country. The easternmost point of Russia is well east of Japan. Murmansk is 11 time zones to the west, just about 100 kilometers from Norway and Finland. In fact, Anna works for a Norwegian environmental organization. It's called Bologna. So in addition to serving as my interpreter, she's helping me get educated about the environmental issues in this part of the Russian Arctic. And there are a lot of them.
1: First of all, it's nuclear and radiation safety because Murmansk is so special in this matter. By that she means nuclear power plants, a military
0: base for nuclear ships and submarines, and lots of spent nuclear fuel and radioactive
1: waste. But that's just item number one on her list. Uh, It's um, Arctic and everything about the Arctic from the oil and gas to the Northern Sea route and climate and everything. It's the renewable sources of energy and green energy technologies. And of course it's um, industrial pollution.
0: That last thing, industrial pollution, is what I wanted to focus on, in part because it runs so counter to our notions of what the Arctic is. We like to think of it as this pristine, untouched place, but Murmansk is a military and industrial hub. Anna and I stop at the port and watch massive cranes loading and unloading ships. We cross a footbridge over a maze of train tracks, most of them full of coal. This region is rich in copper, iron, nickel, and many other minerals and metals, and the mining and processing of those resources has resulted in a lot of toxic stuff going up into the air and down into the soil and the water. So that's partly why Bologna has a presence here. This is a border region, and pollution doesn't need a passport to cross into Norway or Finland. But there's a deeper reason why this and other international organizations have a staff in Russia. They're trying to fill a gap. It's been very hard for Russians to build institutions that might challenge the state, human rights groups, a truly free press, and environmental watchdogs devoted to tracking and publishing all of the various issues playing out up here. Anna said she didn't really know that much about this stuff until she started working for Bologna, but now she's gotten informed, and she loves her job. And
1: uh, if you have asked me about that, like, I don't know, some three, four years ago, I would say it's a lot of fun. That's why I'm there for like 16 years. Um, But now, with all these foreign agents and these very difficult situations for NGOs at the moment, Yeah, you spend much more time trying to do, trying to be careful about doing something.
0: She's referring to something called the foreign agent law, which was passed in 2012. It requires all nonprofit organizations in Russia that receive funding from abroad to be registered as, quote, foreign agents. It gives the authorities more power to intervene in their affairs or just shut them down entirely. A look at the list of groups affected by the law says a lot about its intent. It includes Russia's Committee Against Torture, Human Rights Watch, Transparency International, and many other organizations dedicated to science, media freedom, and open government. You, you learn
1: how to survive being very critical and wanting to solve the problems without offending decision-makers. Ten years ago, I wouldn't care how they would feel about my criticism, and now I care. Now I try to be would try to be more diplomatic, but still pushing." But the question of how to push and how
0: much to push can be pretty dicey. There are journalists who cover environmental issues here. Simply writing one critical article isn't going to cause you too much trouble, probably. But if you're too bold too often, you might get slapped with a huge fine on some trumped-up unrelated charge. If you're thinking all of this sounds like Soviet times, well, that's the authoritarian part of authoritarian capitalism. And the population here has really known almost nothing but authoritarian rule of one kind or another. Anna was born in 1979, which means she spent more than a decade as a Soviet. I wanted details about what that was like. So we decided to take a
1: bus across town to her old neighborhood. I I was a child, and I had a very happy childhood. I liked everything. I liked to be a pioneer. I liked all these uh, school things when you put on the uh, special uh, uniform, like uh, for the parade. I don't know. It was
0: childhood. It was fun. There's quite a bit of nostalgia for Soviet times in Russia right now. In fact, there's a lot of all-out propaganda promoting that nostalgia. But that's not where Anna's coming from. She is by no means longing for a return of the Soviet Union. But she says it really was a classless society in some ways, and that people did feel more unified because of that.
1: Sometimes I behave as a Soviet because I love everything I uh, learned to love when I was a kid. Mm. Like uh, picking up mushrooms and berries, doing pickles, (laughs) mayonnaise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't love some mayonnaise? I mean,
1: come on. (laughs) Well, but no, of course I'm Russian. No, no, no. I don't want to go back to the Soviet Union, Mm. for sure. It's just that as a kid,
0: there was a lot to enjoy about Soviet life. Sometimes even the hard stuff was kind of fun. As we walk around her old neighborhood, she tells me that at the end of the 1980s, there was a big economic downturn, and sometimes there wasn't enough food for everyone in the grocery stores.
1: There were big lines of people waiting for, I don't know, cheese or ham or something.
0: She says you could almost always find staples like cereal or potatoes.
1: But if you want to buy chicken or ham, or, I don't know, cheese. Uh, it was a deficit. So to get those items, you had to wait in line.
0: Anna's parents made sure she always had money when she left the house in case something they needed
1: suddenly showed up in the store. So I think I was 12. I always had the money. If I go from school, I pass this supermarket. And every day I go inside to see if they have anything like special. And if they have, I was buying it.
0: The rule was you waited and then you got one of whatever was being sold. But there are rules and there's reality.
1: And it was a very interesting thing because people were trying to buy as much as possible straight away. So there was a rule like half kilogram of cheese in one hand. And people were queuing several times in the line. So it was like, and as you were a kid, you get used to it very fast. It's like, you say, well, I will be after you, and then some, I don't know, another 10 meters. You come there saying, I'm after you, and you go back and forth there. And then you come from school two hours later, but with cheese (laughs) and ham. (laughs) 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 So you would go up
0: and get some, and then hop back in the line. Yes, yes. And, and, but obviously everybody was doing this, so they knew it was happening. Yes, yes.
1: But, but come on, um, the, the um, shop assistants. They were also people. You sure, yeah. yeah. No, no, but uh, their task was to cut cheese into pieces as fast as possible. They were not even watching who is taking it. Uh. Their task was to watch that one hand, then <laughs> <and> one piece. <laughs> so, would you feel kind of proud when you came home and you're like, look, I scored four pieces of cheese and a chunk of ham?
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, I was proud. We cross the street and head toward the apartment where Anna grew up. Her mother still lives there. On the way, we pass a big shopping area with a McDonald's in it. There are several in Murmansk now, and a building with huge Soviet murals painted on the outside walls. So in one glance, you can see the golden arches and the hammer and sickle. Oh, God. I came back to my childhood. The predominant architectural feature of Murmansk is definitely the apartment block. In fact, I didn't see one freestanding individual home in the city, although Anna told me there are a few now out on the outskirts but the vast majority of people live in these hulking concrete buildings. They're usually nine or 10 stories high, and they're mostly gray and often quite run down on the outside. I we used to play here, and my mom was watching us from the balcony. Uh, come in. I ended up going in and out of several apartment buildings during my stay in Murmansk, and the outlines of the experience were always the same. I'd come into a dingy, poorly lit common area, take a rickety elevator up several flights, and then step out into another dark space, sometimes so dark that I couldn't see my hand if I held it in front of my face. But then I'd find a door into a shared hallway and everything would become cleaner and brighter. And when I arrived at my destination and someone opened the door, there was always a warm, spotless, inviting apartment waiting there. And whoever lived there immediately wanted to feed me and give me tea. It almost seemed like people gave extra care to their private spaces, the part they have some control over, to compensate for the way so much of the public space has been neglected. This is my mom. (laughs) Hello. Amy. 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 Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Please come in. Thank you. Ah, who's on television here, Anna?
1: Uh, Our president.
0: It was inauguration day for Vladimir Putin, and the ceremony was on TV.
1: Because it's his fourth time, I think he can pronounce the oath by heart. <laughs> we
0: switched off the television and started looking through some old photo albums from Anna's childhood. In a lot of the pictures, she's wearing the signature red scarf of the Pioneers, a huge Soviet youth organization, which she describes as kind of like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. There were levels you moved through. First, you were octubrionic, then a pioneer, and later,
1: in high school, a Komsomol. This was a parade uniform.
0: Oh, okay, and did you have to buy those, or were they like?
1: Yes, you you're buying it. Mm. Absolutely. Hmm.
0: But but everybody bought them. It wasn't like anybody said, "Oh, I don't want it or I can't afford it or
1: whatever." You just bought it if you were supposed to buy it. No, you was obliged to buy it and wear it, regardless to if you want or not. Oh, I. See. Nobody was. Think in such a direction. Like, I don't want... Uh, who asked you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anna and I had lots of moments like this where I would ask a question and she would look at me quizzically and we'd realize we'd stumbled upon a cultural difference. Playing the role of the independent American, I, of course, was thinking about individual preferences. But this was the Soviet Union. Personal preferences were not relevant. Like Anna said, who asked you? Was the Pioneers focused on, like outdoor um like was it focused on like being able to start a fire and put up a tent and that kind of stuff the way the boys no go?
1: no 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 no, no. Mm. no it was no uh the pioneers were more about ideology mm. not something else yeah. what so what would be some things that you
0: would learn in terms of ideology like what what did they teach you
1: no uh it's not <laughs> it, nah, it's different no nah, it's not like if they taught us something special, it was just um, uh, they were teaching us this feeling of pride being a pioneer. You know, I remember when we were um, like younger, Oktybrionek with this badge, uh, the best students were, were the first to be pioneers, and then they bring you to a classroom. And then there are um, high school kids and they are all already and they ask you some tricky questions and you're not prepared to it. And I remember we were answering the questions until someone asked, why do you want to be a pioneer? And then there was such a silence. And then there was a question, why the hell do I want to be a pioneer? And we were just looking at each other and we didn't know what to answer. And then the teacher started to help. Like, you want to be a leader of Octobriana." Yes, we do want to be a leader. You didn't really know why you wanted to be a leader. No, no. They didn't tell us. (laughs) They didn't tell us why we should want it. But it was very honorable to be. (laughs) You just knew you should want it.
0: (laughs) What you learned in Pioneers was that you were proud to be a pioneer, and by extension, a Soviet. Like Anna said, this was about ideology, not something else. Of course, most young kids in any country would probably have a hard time explaining why they want to be part of any organization. But throughout my week in Murmansk, I kept remembering this little story because it was echoed by other people in different contexts. People talked about being trained to join and follow rules, not to question or reflect. And they weren't talking about the Soviet past, they were talking about now. We say our goodbyes to Anna's mom and head back across
1: town on the bus.
0: Like, what's your biggest dream? Um, do you want to go like, work in a diplomatic position?
1: Or... No, 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 we are in Russia, I will never, I would love to, uh, but um, yeah. no, 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 we are in Russia, I will never be a diplomat after being a foreign agent. <laughs> uh...
0: Because Anna works for an environmental organization based in Norway, she's now tainted. And she is not a revolutionary type. She doesn't go out and shout slogans in the street, but that doesn't matter. Her career prospects are forever changed, and all of her communications are monitored. She just assumes the FSB can read any email or listen in on any phone call if they choose to do so. But I have to note that this is so common in Russia that Anna didn't even seem to think it was a very big deal. She told me about it casually over drinks one night, but I was appalled. You don't have any privacy, I said. She kind of chuckled and said, privacy is a very American concept. But I couldn't let it go. It's not fair, I kept saying. And she looked at me in a way that told me we were having one of those moments again, one of those cultural gaps. You Americans have this thing where you say, it's not fair, she said, and maybe in your country, then you can go change something and make it fair, and everything's fine. This is Russia. We don't think that way here. We'll have more from Russia next time. Production partners for Season 2 of Threshold are Montana Public Radio and PRI's The World. Our reporting was funded by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Park Foundation, and by our community of listeners. Make your contribution today at thresholdpodcast.org. Threshold is made by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skibicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Helen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Coston, Matt Herlihy, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Vitaly Okimov, Tim Anderson, Olga Kramer, and Alice Harris. Our music is by Travis Yost.